Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show. Once again, and as always, I am your host, Mallory Ortberg, also known as Dear Prudence. With me in the studio this week are the hosts of the podcast By the Book, Kristen Meinzer and Jolenta Greenberg. Guys, welcome. Hi, Mallory. So glad to be here. Hi, thanks for having us. We're very excited. Thank you for being had. I, too, am excited because right before we started recording, we all started talking about love languages because I semi-jokingly brought up that my love language is being wildly overpraised for doing something incredibly basic and that most adults should be able to do. And then you guys started to tell me a little bit about what you're doing around love languages right now. Mallory, I believe you are speaking of the love language known as words of affirmation from the five love languages, which just happens to be one of our by the book books that Jolenta and I recently lived by. And um, yeah, that episode is out in February. Yeah, it's a February episode. I'm going to have to listen to that because the love languages book is, as I told you guys right before we started recording, like tarot for people who have worked in management or like... You have to explain this further. (laughs) This is the most fascinating idea to me. I love tarot, and I don't know anything about HR, so I'm very curious. I also know almost nothing about HR, which does not prevent me from making wild, sweeping claims about HR. But um, So I tend to class the following as sort of the same thing. Um, Tarot, astrology, love languages, Myers-Briggs. It's all the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you just want to put people in categories is what it comes down to. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a desire to categorize, to taxonomize, to make order out of chaos, which is totally understandable, by the way. I don't mean to slight any of those things. Um, they're not really based in like rigorous science, which, again, is not in any way like a sort of um, like criticism. Lots of things are not rooted in rigorous science, and that is absolutely fine. Um and yeah, most of the books we live by are not actually rooted in science. My life is not. My life is not rooted in rigorous <laughs> I, science. I would call I, it I, pretty heavy pseudo pseudoscience. Yes, yeah. lots of pseudoscience in the books that Jolenta and I live by. Lots of yes. fashionable doctorates. Exactly, and and people love them. And when they get really, really into it, it sometimes becomes sort of like impossible to distinguish distinguish between like, okay, you're you're sort of aware of the ways in which this is like just a framework that you're choosing to apply to the world, and it might be useful in helping you sort out your thoughts and feelings, but it's not necessarily like an immutable truth about the nature of being. Uh, or are you taking this all 100% at, at face value? And I'm a little nervous to ask because if I ask and I I, I didn't guess the right answer, I will insult you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, especially, you know, I went to uh, an evangelical Christian college um, and it was also a college with a big business school. And that sort of combination of evangelical Christians and business majors um, are generally speaking people who are not necessarily going to be very into tarot and astrology because that kind of bumps up against the sort of like general occult uh, that that may be considered sort of a no-go, um, but but also are really into magical thinking, as we all are. Like, again, this is not a slam against magical thinking. I, I use it all the time. Um, 
But people would kind of talk about it like, my love language is this, meaning this is the only way I get or experience or receive love. This is an immutable truth about me. It cannot change. It is the one thing you need to know about me. Uh, And now that I have told you my work in the act of loving is done, uh, and you can either provide me with those things or fail to love me. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds great. Oh, God. Awesome. You have things worked out, Mallory. You know what you're doing. Look, we're all out here trying to make order out of chaos. Why do you think we're all talking about skincare right now? Like, the world is falling apart, and no one knows what to do about it. And so there's just a sort of sense of, I guess I will spend a lot of money on face masks, and then we'll all die. Yep. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm totally doing that. Yeah. See, my magical thinking is, if I'm aware of the reasons behind why we're all doing things... I'm above it when the reality is I am not above anything. I am just as scared and confused and in need of direction as the rest of us. Oh, but you're so good at giving direction, Mallory. You're so good at it. It's a great defense mechanism. It's really working. You know, terror management theory is a real thing. So speaking of which, I feel like our first letter illustrates everything that we have just described, like the ways in which we communicate, the ways in which we receive love, a desire to seek order out of chaos. um, And it's all uh, rolled up. In, in the sort of figure of the uh, reserved withholding parents, um, which I'm so here for. Would you guys, would one of you please read our first letter? Dear Prudence, my sisters and I are all adults, have successful jobs and great families. Our parents are academics and taught us the value of achievement, perhaps a bit too much. Their love was not unconditional. Our value was based on our academic and professional success. We were rewarded for achievement, and affection was withheld for failures. My parents didn't speak to me for several months after I decided to quit a graduate program. We were never taught to love ourselves for who we were. To this day, Christmas updates to friends and family only include academic or professional successes. My oldest sister confessed once after receiving a prestigious promotion, maybe they will be proud of me now. There was, is, little to no emotional support. At a retirement reception, many Teary students told stories of the great impact our parents had on them. In recent years, they have become almost rabid fans of their university sports programs. They travel across the country multiple times a year to go to games. They have teams over to their house for dinner. They are friends with the players' parents. There are several that they refer to as their other daughters. My sister and I have been through therapy to help deal with our attachment issues, but we regularly feel hurt when we get texts about what a wonderful, talented, conscientious girl so-and-so is, or when they mention they're flying across the country for a volleyball game or a choir concert. They do these things for others, but didn't go wedding dress shopping with any of us, weren't there for the births of their grandchildren, and regularly pass up birthday parties for those events. How can my sisters and I better deal with these feelings of, for lack of a better word, betrayal? Should I say something to my parents? I want to be happy that they are actively involved in something they love, but I can't help but wonder why they can't love us that way. Oof. Yes, you should say something to your parents. Absolutely say something to them. Oh, my God. I mean, but I do have to say, first of all, just I'm going to show some empathy. This sounds really horrible. And I'm so glad that you and your sisters are all getting counseling. But Mm -hmm. yes, you can be proactive here. You can say something to your parents. And just two caveats here. I don't know if I would, if I were the letter writer, I don't know if I would bring in those other students who are fans of the parents. Actually, I might leave that out. And I might just also be prepared for some defensiveness because, of course, no parent wants to be told they're parenting wrong. But yeah, just go ahead and say it. Say it. Say, parents, I want you to know that I so value you 
for all the ways you set me up for academic and professional success, but this is something else I need. I need emotional support and I need talking. I need to talk about feelings and I need to talk about life events that are outside of what happens at work or learning. And um, that's how that's how I would feel most loved by you to go back to your love languages thing you were saying there earlier. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I gosh, feel so much empathy for this letter writer and their sisters. Um, and this this does sound like an acutely painful situation. It seems like at least part of what is so painful about it is no one in the family, it sounds like, has openly acknowledged to the parents um, the reality of their relationship. Like there can be uh, sometimes a sense of relief in the sort of dysfunctional family where everyone is sort of aware Oh, yes, we are a dysfunctional family. We do not do these things well. Um, even if they're not all like actively trying to get better at it, at least there's a sense of uh, I'm not the only person experiencing this. Uh, somebody else is not pretending that things are fine when they aren't. We, we, we know what's going on here. And, and part of what's so difficult about this is, is you have not allowed yourself, for really understandable reasons, um, you know, your parents are not super emotionally receptive, uh, but you haven't been able to say, hey, this is just like a reality about the ways in which you guys parent. Um, and so that kind of will just always make you feel isolated from them, um, like you are possibly totally alone in this, um, and like you cannot ever say anything about it. And I think, I don't think that's a conversation that's likely to go great in the sense that like going great would mean they would listen, be non-defensive, accept your version of the truth, take it to heart, apologize and 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 really want to like be part of an ongoing dialogue about how to change but um I still think it's worth having there's always certainly. mediation or family therapy you know it, it doesn't end when when kids are kids I don't think there's there's you know if it's too hard for you to bring up you could maybe ask them to come to your family therapy session you know and have have someone help guide you through that sort of confrontation process if if it really is that hard. There's yeah. always there's always someone that can help help nudge it along for you too. Yeah, and it sounds like these kids are terrified of confronting their parents oh, because I would be. all these girls are grown up and they're married and they all have kids and they're mm-hmm. still scared to confront them. And um so yeah, maybe a counselor could help, but also if they're brave enough, they can also take the lead on shifting the conversation. When they talk to their parents, they can shift it over to talking about their lives. And that means their emotional lives Mm -hmm. and what they're feeling and what they're experiencing in their families. And if they continually do that, that's also setting the example of saying, this is what I want to talk about. And this is what I want to be acknowledged for. Right. And I think Letter writer, my biggest hope for you that's sort of realistic and grounded in the the way that you've described your family, um, there is a chance, there's always a chance that if you bring this to your parents and if you say, this is really hard for me to say, um, this is something that's been true about our family ever since I was a child, I have never named this dynamic to you. Um, you 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 know you have offered affection and approval on the condition of achievement um and when we don't produce achievement you do not offer those things and that's been acutely painful for me my whole life um and i want to talk about it. i want to be able to talk about it with you it's possible that they might really hear that um and respond uh, with sorrow, with regret that they hurt you, with a desire to change um i think it's probably more likely that they will um freeze up 
uh, that they will simply deny it, um, that they will try to argue with you, um, that they will try to redirect the conversation. All of those, I think, are within the realm of possibility. And and that would be painful, but I think... Um, the most important thing here is not how do I get my parents to see things the way that I see them so much as I think it will make you feel a lot less like panicked, like you might be going kind of nuts, um, totally uh, just bottled up if you just name reality. And if they don't choose to see it with you, it will still feel better for you to have said it really hurts me uh, when you talk about having other daughters and yet, you know, you stopped speaking to me when I dropped out of a graduate program, when you withhold affection for me unless I achieve according to your specifications. You know, it hurts me that you didn't, you know, come to the birth of your grandchild. Like those things should just be things you should be able to talk about. Um, and I think it may be that their first response uh, is the worst, and and as time goes on, they become more receptive. But I think to say it in a spirit of love, not like, hey, I've been saving up a laundry list of ways in which you failed because I want you to feel bad about yourself, but like, as your child who loves you, um, I, I want you to know something that you have done that has hurt me um, because I believe that you do love me and and don't want to hurt me, um, and, and I want things to be different. Can they be different? Can we talk about that? Oh, I love that so much. I love that so much. Yeah. And And if they don't, if... If their response is just awful, then you can say, okay, I'm going to need to put a limit on, you know, uh, how much time I come home for Christmas at. Or I need to put a limit on a conversation where you only ask me what I've done at work and then hang up. Like, you can say, I want to talk about my feelings now. You know, like, you can, you can once you've started to have that conversation, you can continue to bring it up. And if they are unable to meet you even close to halfway, um, then you can subsequently make decisions like, mom, I really love you. I'm going to go. Yeah. And I think I like what you said about throwing in the I really love you because right, right. all of this should be from a place of love. And it's all because you want a better relationship with them, which which sometimes when confrontations are, are in the heat of confrontationing, you forget why you're doing it. So just try to keep that in mind. And usually the approach gets through a teeny bit if you really cover it with love. Yeah. And, and I think just for whatever it's worth, it will feel better to have these honest conversations than to be constantly kind of chasing the brass ring um, and not getting it and seeing them kind of give a version of it to other people. Um, and, it, you know, if the best outcome of this is you share these things honestly and vulnerably, your parents kind of shut down the conversation um, and then you decide to, you know, limit the amount of time you spend talking to them in order to not like, you know, continue to pour all your emotional energy into people who will never return it. Um, that's a good outcome. You know, that's that's not the best possible outcome, but that's better than your current situation, which is sort of like hoping for them to take notice of you because um, I just don't yeah. think they're going to get there. On Question, their own. though, I don't know if I would even bring up those other girls. I mean, I said at the top, I, I personally would not bring up those other girls because what the parents are appreciating about those other girls are also their academic achievements and their successes and so on. And so you're not even competing for that kind of love from your parents. They already give you accolades for your achievements. They show up for your um, what they consider worldly successes. And so what they're asking for is not what these daughters want something different. So I don't know if I would compare myself to those girls. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think they should be the focus of the conversation, right? Because, like, if the parents had been providing lots of emotional support uh, separated from performance, I don't think the girls would be as big of a problem. Um, but I do think just as an example, you know, you can just kind of frame, like, one thing that hurts is, um, 
when I fill this big gap from you emotionally, and then I hear from you about how wonderful and conscientious these girls are, um, I wish you would say those things to me. And I'm not saying that because I think you shouldn't be close with these people. Uh, I'm not saying that because I don't like them or I resent that you have interests and hobbies outside of me. Um, but I just want you to know, uh, you know, throughout my life, you have often not said things like positive affirmation about me. And I wish that you had. It, it would it caused me pain that you didn't. Again, not you were a terrible parent and you should feel bad for the rest of your life. Just like I want you to know mm. what's going on with me emotionally. Yeah, but good luck. I think this is a conversation that's very much worth having. Um, you sound like an incredibly emotionally sensitive um, person. You don't kind of overstate harms done. So I think the odds that you'll be able to bring this case to your parents um, in a spirit of love and and patience and an attempt to, to mutually understand one another is high. And, and I hope that that goes well. And I think you should kind of check in with your therapist beforehand, check in with your siblings beforehand, just give them a heads up. Hey, I'm going to talk to mom and dad about this. You know, wish me luck. Um, and, and let us know how it goes. Keep us posted. All right. Uh, this next one, also about family, also incredibly fraught. Uh, also, one I'm glad I have two guests to help me answer today because I saw this one. I was just like, oh, man, this is yeah. a lot of bells mm -hmm. to unring here. So the subject is just out of his leak. Dear Prudence, I'm a lesbian and I'm trying to be a good big sister to my 22-year-old brother, Lee. I love Lee. He can be really funny and sweet when he puts his mind to it, but he hasn't had a lot of experience with girls. He had a girlfriend in high school and not much since. Our family line tends toward being short and hairy, girls included. It took me a while before I got comfortable with makeup, razors, and not just swimming in sweats. My brother does not have the best grooming habits. He also always tends to fixate on really pretty girls who are obligated to smile at him. He was once asked to leave a local coffee shop for, quote, bothering some baristas. He keeps saying he wants a girlfriend, but gets very bitter when I tell him to get out there and ask people out, even if he gets rejected. I'm starting to worry about him. Lee has started to repeat some seriously creepy red pill rhetoric in my presence. My neighbor has also told me that she's been seeing him looking over the fence into her house constantly. Is there anything I can do? Lee lives with me and is my little brother. I'm responsible for him, and I feel like I'm going to over or underreact to all of this. I need advice. Oh, boy. Well, first of all, no. no. Yeah, no, I don't You're think any of us read this <laughs> and was like, yeah, yeah. you could well, underreact. First of all, I have to say to the letter writer, you have got to be the kindest older sister in the whole world, not just because you took in your kid brother, but also mm -hmm. because, let me tell you, every other big sister in the world I know would have already teased her little brother relentlessly about his hygiene and so on. The fact that um, she's been so kind and it sounds like she's been not confrontational yeah, about any of patient. the stuff. Very patient. And she refers to him as her baby brother. But, mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things about being a guardian I'm sure we've all heard this before. We parents aren't there to raise children. They're there to raise good adults. And he's very early in his adulthood and the letter writer can help him become a better adult. This is something that you can do. And it's an ongoing conversation. It's not like the, you know, some people think the birds and the bees talk is this is one talk and it's one and done. But it's an ongoing conversation, and that has to do with everything, including dating, including consent, including respect, including how do you interact with people that you may or may may or may want to at some point have sex with or may want to at some point go on a date with or may want to someday just say hello to. And it should be something that's ongoing. And a lot of this stuff is creepy and needs to be confronted, even though yeah. it's scary to talk about. But um 
it's a horrible part of raising a young adult is having those tough conversations. And without you, letter writer, he may not get that messaging elsewhere in a good way, except, you know, he might be getting it from 4chan or somewhere else right now. Yeah, and that's not where we want. We don't want him to get it. So. Yeah, I want to. I want to. Oh, I'm sure he's already there. Um, I want to add a couple of things to that. Um, number one is absolutely. I think all of those points are are wonderful. I do want to yeah. add. He's 22 years old. Um, he's not 16. He's not a child. He is 22. He is a young adult. There are lots of things that I did and said at 22 that I am glad not to do and say now. Um, but he is not a child uh, with kind of no sense of how to behave in the world. So I do want to sort of add that in part because, letter writer, I don't think you're in danger of underreacting um, at all. And and I want to caution you against um, your love for your brother and the person that you want him to be. Um, or when you look at him and you see the child you knew him as or the best version of himself that you believe exists somewhere, um, don't let that blind you to the realities of the things that he says and does. Sometimes when somebody we love does something wrong, um, it's so difficult to hold those two images in our head at once. We will find a way to resolve them. And so we'll say, well, that's not really him because the best version of himself is this other person. That's the real him. Um, and your brother is the things that he says and does. Um, that's not all that he is, but it's a big part of it. Um, so there's kind of an order of operations here, right? You kind of mentioned oh, a lot of the people in our family have a little tough time kind of figuring out hygiene, grooming stuff, um, as if to say sort of like this is a family trait and I can relate to it. And it took me a while to figure it out, so maybe I can help him out there too. And I totally get that. Um, that's not your number one priority. Number one priority right yeah. now is the fact that your neighbor has told you that he is frequently staring Stocking into behavior her house. Is- is an indicator is an indicator behavior yeah. and one to be taken super seriously. Yeah, that's bleeding into peeping Tom. That's bleeding into possible stalking. Again, I don't know like how close is he getting to her property? Is he mm-hmm. like looking through curtains? Um, is she leaving all of her windows like wide open and he just f- happened to look over? Like there's there's a wide possibility of of things here, but you need to talk to him about that. If your neighbor took it seriously enough to bring it up with to you, your response to her needs to be, I'm so sorry. Thank you for letting me know. I will speak to him about it. Um, And then you need to speak to your brother and you need to say, hey, the neighbor says that you are often looking over the fence into her house. Talk to me about that. Why do you do that? What are you looking to see? Um, Do you think that's appropriate behavior? Um, And that's going to feel really uncomfortable, of course, because who wants to have that conversation with their brother? Um, But you need to because you now know that this is something he does and he has done it so overtly that she's noticed and it's made her uncomfortable. Um, And you need to communicate to him, especially since you two live together, that that is not an okay way to behave Um, and that potentially that could lead to behavior that could get him arrested. Um, And that's the most serious thing here. So so that's your number one action to take. Um, number two is the, the the fact that he's also been asked to leave a coffee shop. Again, these are these are red flags. This is not like, oh, sometimes he's uncomfortable or awkward around girls. You have to be pretty over the line um, to sort of override the general customer is always right thing in a coffee shop. Um, if you got asked to leave, there's a reason. Um, and 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 the the red pill rhetoric, and for anyone who is uh, fortunate enough not to be aware of the sort of concept of the red pill, uh, it is a bunch of dudes online who saw the Matrix and were like that, but about feminism. 
um, and just sort of generally feel like uh, the world is this sort of subterfuge designed to put one over on men. Uh, and if they choose to take the red pill and realize that, you know, uh, interaction between men and women is all just a horrible game that is designed to punish men and reward women. Um, and if they could just somehow uh, take a different kind of pill and, and treat women uh, like essentially evil robots who are here to cause men to suffer, uh, they can get what they need out of the system, which obviously is uh, sexual access to women. Uh, and it's dumb and bad and wrong. Um, and it's a bad way to think about the world. Um, and it's not a great movie. Um, and that's, I guess, the sort of primer on, on red pilling. Uh, anyways, all of which is to say is those are things that are really important to talk to your brother about. Um, like when he starts to repeat those things, stop. Ask him what he means by that. Have a response for that. Tell him how it makes you feel as a woman. Um, don't just let those moments pass by unremarked. Um, don't just assume that he doesn't mean it. Don't just kind of go with, oh, he's getting it from the Internet and it's not him really. It is him. He is saying those things in part because he is trying to test out if I say these things to other people, if I sort of escalate my like poisonous philosophy about the nature of women and men, um, do other people accept it? Can I still go places? Um, will I be met with censure or with, uh, you know, silent tacit approval? Um, don't meet him with silent yeah, tacit every approval. Every time there is a red flag, note note it aloud to him. And I don't I don't want to get too extreme, but if this if all of a sudden his behavior is is crazy out of the norm, I would say you know my personal journey with depression and mental illness was a. Uh, it tends to start when you're in your early to mid-20s. If you notice huge shifts in behavior and, like, dramatic changes in personality, I feel like my my advice to the first letter writer was also, like, there's always professional help, you know? If these red flags keep popping up more frequently and in, in bigger ways, uh, it might be something bigger than you can handle on your own, too. And there's no shame in confronting it and confronting it with a professional. I always 100 percent am an advocate for seeking professional help. They are there to help us. They are professionals for how our brains work and so on. And I love therapy and I think people should definitely seek out therapy whenever it's helpful for them. But I mean, I want to say just on the flip side of this, let's say this is just a really awkward 22 year old who's saying dumb shit and doesn't really quite know social skills and is staring at girls too long and isn't a threat in any way. He still needs to be talked to. Yeah. He still needs to be stopped whenever he says stuff like this. And it could very likely just be a kid saying dumb stuff, but it still needs to be addressed, even if that's the case. Yeah, and I'm going to I'm going to push back a little bit on on two of those things. One of which is it's always great um to check in when it comes to something like therapy, mental health. Um I also don't want to medicalize uh misogyny and um violence against women because uh that is an endemic and poisonous part of our culture. Um, and it is not the case that every man who expresses um, hateful and sexist views about women um, is suffering from a mental illness. He is participating in, you know, patriarchal violence. Um, so again, not to like make any sort of armchair diagnosis, I just want to point out um, that's not necessarily a, a sudden change in behavior. Um, and so while that's a possible uh, explanation, it's also not um, the root of the problem. And the other one is, um, this is more than awkward. This is more than just he doesn't know better. Um, he has been 
asked not to do, to do things, and it sounds like he has continued to do them. Like, he was asked to leave a coffee shop for, you know, non-specifically bothering some baristas, um, and he is now bothering your neighbor. Um, so he has actually been told that this behavior is not okay and has continued to do so, which, again, don't fall into the trap of thinking he just doesn't know any better. Uh, he may very well know better, but because he's doing this to women, um, he's finding that he can get away with it, and that's not okay. So... Um, this is worth push, pushing back on. Uh, this is worth um, treating him like an adult. Um, he is not your responsibility. You say you're responsible for him. You're not. I understand that what you mean is I have a family obligation to him. I love him. I wish him the best. I know him in a way that other people don't. As his sister, uh, I can relate to him in a way that many women can't because we have an established family relationship and he doesn't try to sexualize me. Um, I get all of those things. None of those make you responsible for him. He's 22 years old. He's his own person. Um, you live together, but you're not his parent. He is not a child. Um, so, you know, have those conversations. Push back. Ultimately, um, if he experiences pushback in his life, uh, if women don't go out with him as a result of his, like, toxic, unpleasant, sexist behavior, that is okay. Uh, that's actually a really reasonable response to the things that he says and does. So I, I think this is worth reframing. Um, and it's worth... Um, both engaging more often and then in some other ways disengaging in terms of how much responsibility you take for him. And I wish you the best. The good news is our next letter, there's kind of a straightforward, helpful answer that we can give to this person. And I'm jazzed about that. Well, Wouldn't you guys mind reading it? Oh, this is so straightforward. I'll read it. Um, subject is, I'm keeping my baby. Dear Prudence, I constantly get asked why I didn't choose to have an abortion when I got pregnant. I thought I was sterile. I married a man 10 years my junior, and we were happy with no children. After my first marriage failed, I'd finally come to terms with the fact that I wasn't going to have children, even though I had spent a long time wishing for them. My husband, who had also been told he was sterile, discovered a, quote, surprise son out of the woodwork, and we gained permanent custody due to his biological mother's inability to care for him. I am now 40, a stay-at-home mom to this little boy, and now surprised to find myself pregnant. I'm also 40 diabetic, obese, and mildly autistic. Every day I am badgered and called irresponsible for choosing to continue the pregnancy. I was told by a doctor to abort and wait until I got thin. Thin I will never be. Although this baby was never supposed to happen, I was very happy once the terror and surprise faded. My family and my mother-in-law support my choice to carry on despite all the risks. No one else appears to, unless they are very religious." How do I politely explain this was an unplanned but not unwanted surprise that will take a great deal of effort and that I am fully aware of the risks and possibility of defects and issues? I also am told that by choosing to have my baby, I cannot claim to be pro-choice since I didn't abort my baby. I am so sorry that so many of your friends suck. What the fuck? Who are these friends? Pro-choice <laughs> means, <laughs> my God. means choosing. Yeah. You have the worst friends. Say, who is badgering you? And when is a pregnant woman getting badgered about, like, what? Like, also, who is your doctor? Ugh. Fire your doctor and fire I your friends say, right now. I oh mean, my, gosh. my knee jerk reaction is to just say it's none of your business if people are badgering you. You have your family's support. Um, it's super disappointing that people can't see past their, you know, their own lives and, and assumptions and expectations of motherhood. Also, uh, hello, 
choosing to be pregnant is also a choice. Yeah, that's also part of being means pro-choice. You can choose. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> part of, of the, the choice. Yeah, you, there's basically two choices: <laughs> and, give birth uh, or don't give birth. Yeah. yeah, I am. I will say, I am happy and relieved that your family and your mother-in-law support your choice because so often yes. yeah. I hear from people who are like, actually, the people closest to me are the worst about it. Um, so, Ava, congratulations um, on getting pregnant. Uh, it sounds like you've wanted a child, and this is sort of an unexpected source of delight and excitement. And I'm just really happy for you. Um, I hope that your pregnancy goes really, really well. And just congratulations. That's that's wonderful. Um, but we have to answer her question, don't we? Yeah, yeah question we do. was, uh, how do we politely answer these people, these horrible people? Yeah, I mean... Go with the bare limits of politeness. Like, feel free not to be especially polite when people say things like that. Um, yeah, you if somebody them says, no explanation. If somebody's told you that you can't claim to be pro-choice because you have made a choice. Pro-choice does not mean pro-abortion. It literally means the person who is pregnant should make the decision. Um, that person is simply incorrect, right? That person does not understand the definition of, of pro-choice. And you can simply correct them. Uh, and then also, you know, that is not a good person. Like that's not that's not a loving and a kind person. I think there's there's certainly um, like some ableism and fat phobia at play here, right? Like you mention that you are diabetic, that you are obese, that you are on the autism spectrum, um, and that those are reasons that other people have have told you you ought not to be pregnant. Um, and the idea that the only people who should get pregnant are um, Young people with certain types of bodies uh, who are like neurotypical uh, is frankly eugenicist. Like I'm going to go ahead and like just throw that word out there. That is a, a reprehensible stance to take um, to reproduction. Um, people have the right to get pregnant, even if they have physical risk factors. They have the right to make informed decisions in their own best interest. Um, once they have all the information that they need, people have the right to take risks that another person might not. Um, people have the right to choose to have a family um, without meeting whatever criteria somebody else thinks that they ought to meet. Um, and if there's anybody who is either implying or out and out stating um, you should have an abortion um, because you are on the autism spectrum or because you are obese, um, that is a shitty person. And they suck. And their ideas are bad. Um, and you should not feel for even a second bad for dismissing them from their life, like from your life, rather. I could not agree more. Get them out of your life now so they aren't toxic around your baby. Find some other friends. Yeah, and like find a doctor who says, you know, here, like a doctor who will say, hey, here is like the information about your pregnancy. Here are things that I recommend you do in order to take care of your health and your baby's health. Um, like given your decision to carry this child to term, um, like no one, do you know what I mean? It's not like the doctor said, if you carry this child to term, you're going to die. You're putting your own life at risk, which, you know, even if that's the case, sometimes people make that choice and it is a difficult choice to understand. But again, it is the choice of the person carrying the child. Like a, a doctor who just says, because you are obese, um, this pregnancy is not worth even attempting to treat medically. Um, I think you should just stop and start over. That's a bad doctor who's violated the Hippocratic Oath. Yeah, I was going to say that. A doctor who who is shaming you, even if they think it's in your best interest, is, is a doctor you have every right to stop seeing. Yeah, you don't want to be in this vulnerable position where you're gestating a human and then on a table giving birth with somebody who doesn't trust you as a patient or treat you like a human being. And so, no, fire that doctor. 
Yep. Get a better doctor. Yeah. To, so just to anybody who thinks that uh, you should not, you know, continue with your pregnancy, um, that you should uh, apologize um, for being of, you know, the phrases of advanced maternal age, um, for having diabetes, for being obese, for for being on the autism spectrum. Uh, again, those are those are simply the realities of your life within those confines. Um, you know, make the best decisions that you can for your own health and for your child's health. Um, but anybody who says you do not, you should not get pregnant, um, you should have an abortion, uh, they are wrong. Uh, it is none of their business and it is not their choice. Um, and if they were truly pro-choice, they would say things like, how can I help support you? And what do you need? That would be supporting your choice. I'm going to say it's also okay for her to say it's none of your fucking business. Yeah, yes. none of your business. None of your business. And she doesn't have to be polite. But if she wants to be polite, she can say, did you really just ask me what I think you asked me? Yeah. Or she can I mean, say, what did we do? How did we let people get pregnant before we knew what autism was? Like, the logic behind that is insane. Like, there are so many like, people have babies every day that that aren't, you know. And and just the idea that a person does not have the right to like carry a higher risk pregnancy to term or that there is some sort of like uh, health condition that a person could have that could preclude them from making the choice to have a child is just like, again, that is eugenicist. Um, and yeah. for those listening at home, eugenicist is a bad thing to be. Don't do it. Do not engage in eugenics, um, especially not with your friends. So. That's it. That's my answer. Uh, I think we're all kind of agreed this is dreadful. Those people are dreadful people, and I'm very sorry. Yeah, they're horrible. Get them out. I kind of wish, actually, that I could put this person in touch with the next letter writer, which is a couple who are trying to make more friends and who sound very thoughtful, very conscientious, very aware of the needs of others. Um, And I really wish that I could set up like a, you know, some sort of adult play date with you guys because I, I wish that I could provide you with better friends now that I've told you that some of the people in your life, God, I hope they're strangers. I hope it's mostly strangers saying this to you, not because I want strangers to be rude to you, but because it's a lot harder to cut friends out of your life than strangers. But with that rambling monologue over, um, would the other one of you care to read this letter? The subject is making friends as adults. Dear Prudence, my wife and I are at a loss about making friends. Probably most people think we have a ton of friends. We do not. We get no invitations to holiday parties or birthday parties or other gatherings. Once in a while, we get an invite to a happy hour. We throw parties at our home two to four times a year. The parties are usually well attended, but every once in a while we have a clunker where barely anyone shows up. Sometimes we cater, sometimes we do potluck, and sometimes we cook everything. We try to be great hosts with great food, music, people, and we supply all the booze. But we never go to parties that we don't throw ourselves. We wonder if people don't like us but show up for our parties. We initiate almost every social gathering that we attend. We're mystified. We wonder if we come off as desperate. We wonder if we're not fun. We wonder if we just have crappy friends. We wonder if we just have unrealistic expectations. We've noticed over the last several years that no one will RSVP anymore, too. Just sending an email saying, hey, I think we can make it, seems like too much to expect anymore. We started having dinner parties, and now people are ghosting after saying they will come to that. We're afraid that we just suck or we expect too much from people. Any guesses? I have so many guesses. I have guesses. a guess. I have lots of Ooh, guesses give me some here, guesses. actually. So the red flag 
in this email to me is the fact that it is just all about part. Like, to me, it's all flash and no substance. To me, mm. it's all about, like, we have music. We have food. We have like, catering. Catering we versus have, yes. potluck versus dinner party, where it's like, this is all sort of the boring logistics and I like, what do you do with your friends? Yeah. What do you talk about with your friends? What sort of groups of friends are you getting together? When's the last time you were invited? What group of friends was that from? There, it's all about sort of the weird. It's like, I feel it's like it's like. It's very presentational a, and not very interactional. Yeah, um, I feel like the, the what's missing is is a, a substantive aspect about their friendships and to me I feel like that is probably what's missing in in why they're not getting invited to parties. Yeah, I mean, I would second that but I would also say you don't have to just interact in parties. Some people would love it if you would just one-on-one invite them out for a walk. Some of them would like a group of two, maybe three of you to get together and um have a drink or just do what something that's not a big event. Activities. And, yeah. And like, some people don't like big events. Some people clubs. are very nervous about a planned event that has invitations and catering. And maybe it could be if you still really want to host parties, you could do something a little bit more casual. Come over on Sunday. We'll watch the football game. We're ordering pizza. A couple folks are going to come over. It doesn't have to be a giant event where people have to RSVP and dress up and do the whole thing. Um, I just think they're putting a lot of weight in what seems to me something that's either not very intimate or alternatively not very fun for some people. This is weirdly, I think, good news in some ways because, uh, you know, the question at the end is uh, we're afraid that we just suck or we expect too much from people. And it sounds like we're kind of in agreement. We think maybe the problem is the expectation um, more than the sucking. Uh, You know, I'm sure there's ways in which you suck. There's ways in which I suck. Um, But I totally agree with you guys. And actually, I I love that you pointed it out because I had not yet realized uh, until you said that, like, oh, right, there's no introspection about, like, what is it like when I get lunch with friends uh, that's not at a party? Like, when do we call one another? How do I know what's going on in their lives? There's nothing in that here. And I think you can focus on those things. Yeah. And does this couple, this hosting couple, ever do things separately, too? Maybe sometimes your friends want to be with just your wife and not you or, you know, there's different kinds of things that are missing that make a friendship happen here. It's just a party. It's not just the showing up to eat and drink. Like, yeah, I find basing things around recurring activities helps the social life once once we're adults. You know, there are there are bachelor fantasy leagues. There are book clubs. There are sports fantasy leagues. I hear, you know, you can have. You can have a go-to thing for your group of friends and your spouse's group of friends, a thing you guys do together. Maybe take a class, meet friends there and invite them all over. Like, I feel like the it's the shared interest and the, the personal connection that gets the people to show up and gets them to invite you, gets them to text back. If you're if you're organizing a gathering where you call everyone and you have a chat and then say, we're having people over for dinner next Friday, like... They probably won't ghost. And that was such a good point, too, about uh, your spouse's friends, because you also talk about this like as if maintaining friendship is a project you two have to do together. And I totally understand the desire when you are in a couple, especially a married couple. You want to share your lives, and that includes your social lives. But, um, you know, what what independent friendships do you guys have and how are you cultivating those friendships? Like who who are you close with just as yourself, an individual, not as half of a married couple? Um, because not all of your friends uh, are going to, you know, like you both the same amount. And there may very well be people who 
would love to get like a drink with you and catch up sometime, but don't necessarily want to come to a big catered dinner at your house. Um, So, yeah, I think, you know, you've realized that throwing a couple of parties a year is not a strategy that is resulting in a robust social life. You know, absent any information that you guys are saying terrible things or are really dull. I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe you are. Maybe you aren't. Um, I think you should change your strategy. I think you should, you know, both individually contact some friends that you would like to spend more time with and just say, hey, I really miss you. I'd really love to see you. Is there a time in the next couple of weeks that you're free that, you know, I can take you out for a drink or we can go on a walk together um, or we can meet up for coffee at the end of the workday? You know, you know, do that um, and don't do it with the sort of goal of reestablishing connections so that six months from now you can throw a party and be sure that everyone's going to show up. Um, but but do it because you you miss some of those relationships and you want to try a different way to reconnect. Yeah. And if you need to get new friends, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think like get rid of all the old ones and just add a bunch of new people, but certainly like seek out new connections. Look for different types of people that you might meet through work or through mutual friends or through the occasional happy hours you do get invited to. You know, if you show up at the occasional happy hour and people feel like you are anxiously trolling for future dinner party invites, like that's not a vibe people respond to. It's kind of like how when somebody really feels desperate for a date, it's often hard for them to get a date because people can feel the desperation and desperation is not attractive. Sometimes people who have found uh, a husband or a wife or a partner, they can carry that desperation into friendships. Do you know what I mean? Like, have you ever met that married couple where it kind of feels like they're like, oh, God, please don't leave us alone with each other. Uh, We sure do need a friend. (laughs) And it's just kind of like, oh, I feel like there's a good chance I might get who's afraid of Virginia Woolf if I come over to your house. Again, not that I'm suggesting you guys are having Uh, awful screaming fights. But if it feels like you need more from others than they might need from you, then that power dynamic, that balance, that imbalance, rather, can sometimes put people off. So um, I think a combination of Relax a little bit. Don't throw so many parties, um, at least for right now, if no one's coming. Um, reconnect with people, both as a couple and individually. Um, and and don't, you know, don't spend a ton of money on catering if no one's showing up. Yeah, don't supply all the booze if they're, <laughs> if they're ghosting half of the time. Well, they say sometimes we potluck. Again, no, the problem is yeah. not sometimes you potluck, sometimes you don't. Um, the problem no. is that you're throwing parties two to four times a year, um, but not necessarily attempting to. Again, maybe you are and we don't know, but this is this is all the information we have. All right. 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 Uh, we do have one voicemail that is about Instagram, and I would love to play it and, and answer it together. Hi, Prudence. Uh, you can call me Millennial, and I wouldn't mind if you altered my voice a little. As I said, I am a millennial and I'm having just some serious issues of feeling like I'm not good enough. I look at the lives of my friends through Instagram and their blogs and other social media and I just feel very pathetic. I know that everyone says 90% of what's on social media is everybody's highlights reel, but it doesn't change how I feel. My husband, who is also a millennial, just does not have this same problem. He never looks at social media and he doesn't compare himself with others. Whenever I want to Instagram something or take a selfie, I feel like he criticizes me and slightly pokes fun of me for doing it. I'm the first to admit that his attitude and approach to this is healthier than mine, but it really doesn't change how I feel. The reality is I can't change my feelings overnight and suddenly adapt to a brand new attitude. So I guess I want to know how can I stop feeling so insecure over friends who have done things like bought a house or moved to France to go to grad school 
And how can I get my husband to understand that in the meantime, I I kind of need to have my own social media presence so that when I look through my stuff, I see my own highlight reel instead of feeling like we don't do anything but watch Big Bang Theory and Vikings all the time. Okay. Hats off to the Minnesota Vikings fans as a Minnesotan. <laughs> oh, I assumed that it was the television program Vikings. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. The show it's about you. Vikings. It is Vikings, Kristen. You think so? Yeah. You don't think that's the Minnesota Vikings? No. I think they would say oh. the Vikings, right? The if Vikings. If they were talking about the sports yeah. team? They would yeah, say, no, like, they mean, the Vikings. Or, uh, no, they mean They Vikings. mean the show on the History Channel that I stopped watching I in season one because well, I got real mad. It's sort of, isn't it just like Water Game of Thrones? Like, hmm. Right? I, I approve of it. Either way, these are not things to be embarrassed of, watching Vikings. Yeah. Vikings are great. Yeah. That's fine. Um... I'm going to say something that I have said many, many, many times that Jolenta has heard me say many times over the course of our friendship and our show, which is my advice that my Nana frequently gave me, which is don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. And it's really, really, really easy to do. It's really easy to look at what is happening out there and thinking that that's the sum of that person. But it's some of that person. That's just a picture they took. That's all it is. It's it's just a picture. That's all it is. And it has as much power over you as you give it. And um, a letter writer is obviously trying to let those photos have less power over him or her. And um, the hope is obviously to put less power in that, maybe as your husband does, spend less time on social media. But in the beginning, I think the first thing you can do is just remember that that's their outsides. Remember, everybody's outsides versus everybody's insides, they're not the same thing. They're different things. That's super true. I would also say maybe reframe how you talk about social media. I wouldn't necessarily say it's everybody's highlight reel. I would say what you see on social media is their ideal projected image reel. It is their highly curated, sort of, you know, socially branded, almost, you know, like the company line, the sort of like it's their commercial for themselves. It's not themselves. It's not it's the highlights they're they're producing for you. Yeah. And they're retouched. There's different filters. There's so many different things that go into any of those images. We all know those images are just images. Mm -hmm. They're just images. And also, like, follow some some fun comedians who make a living with a brand of being sort of, you know, being schlubby and, like, eating snacks like we eat and watching, you know, marathons of TV. Like, I follow people like that. And they're super popular and get millions of likes, but um, they don't make me feel inadequate because I'm not on a private jet or anything. Oh, my God. There's got to be Instagram pages for people who like Vikings. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. All of you together would have so much fun having your photos up of you doing Vikings things or watching the Vikings or whatever it is that Vikings fans do. That seems fun. Reframe to remember it's not necessarily even like the actual highlights. It's what they want you to see as a highlight. And also reframe social media where it's like this is this is also a place where you can find weirdos like you that's what's great about the internet is i can find someone else who knows the dvd commentary by heart from strangers with candy a short-lived sitcom on comedy central in 1999 i can find someone else like that on the internet i can also find you know courtney kardashian and feel horrible about my body um so also like try to have fun with the internet like, find weirdos like you. 
So I'm going to go ahead and give the opposite advice, not because I think that, that is in any way bad advice, but just because I feel like there was enough ambiguity in, in what this person said that in case the other thing is the case, I want them to have a way forward there, too. Um, because she says, right, she she's already aware. I'm looking at a highlight reel. She gets it. She's like, I, I know that that's not uh, objective reality. Um, so it, it's not as if she thinks this is what everyone's life is really like. Um, the problem is a little right. bit different than that. The problem is, uh, I think it sounds like there are actually unaddressed um, insufficiencies or, or things that she's not doing that she would like to be doing. Like she says, you know, uh, I feel like we don't do anything except for watch TV. Um, and again, some of that could be the sort of hyperbole of like my social media presence isn't good enough. Um that that we sort of all experience in the condition of being online. But it, it may also be that part of what this is highlighting um, is you would like something to be a little bit different in your own life. And then you add to that the problem of your husband kind of isn't catching that this means a lot to you. And and again, I'm not saying that he is an insensitive jerk, um, but you're you're kind of in the way that I do sometimes where like when something is beginning to bother me and I'm first becoming aware of it, sometimes the first way that I will bring up a, an anxiety or a dissatisfaction is is uh, I'll soften it. I'll almost make a joke out of it like, oh, does anyone else feel this way? And then if people don't take it really seriously, I will take that kind of unconsciously as evidence that it's dumb and I shouldn't have brought it up and I'm wrong to feel that way. In, so instead of leading with like, I'm really anxious about X thing. I'll kind of float out like a, a sort of test, uh, like a little test balloon. And then if the results don't come back positive, I'm like, oh, this was stupid. I shouldn't have cared about this anyways. They're right to, to, to say that. But if the other person doesn't actually know how big it feels for me, then that actually was a failed test balloon. So if it is true, which I think might be based on this voicemail, um, you do feel like you spend a lot of time watching TV with your husband and you would rather do something like, you know, I know you're not going to buy a house tomorrow or move to France or go to grad school, but, you know, spend some time thinking like, what do I want out of the next couple of years of my life? Um, what's not working for me right now? Do I want to, you know, change something about my career? Do I want to have more of a social life that's separate from my husband? Do I want to deepen my relationship with him? Do I want to travel more? Do I want to, um, you know, do any number of things that people often enjoy doing? Um, And really sit with that dissatisfaction. Don't try to just sort of like put it out of sight, out of mind, but really ask that question. And then I think also just, you know, say to your husband, like, hey, I get that we have really different relationships to social media, um, but I just want you to know I enjoy posting things on Instagram. It feels like something I would like to do. Um, I would love it if you wouldn't tease me every time. Can you do that? Um, I think that's a pretty simple request. Like he does not have to like or think Instagram is great. If every once in a while you would like to take a fun picture of your cat or, you know, the shoes that you're wearing um, and just say, hey, would you please not tease me about that? Um, and, and he should be able to do that and, you know, really let him know um, this may not seem like a big thing to you, but I want you to know that it it. it it brings up issues in me of comparison, dissatisfaction, loneliness, feeling like I don't connect with other people, feel like there's ways in which my life doesn't measure up. And those all matter to me a lot. So, you know, now that you know that, that that comes up for me around something like this, um, could could you speak to me a little bit more kindly? Um, and I hope that he can. Um, and then, you know, in addition to that, yes, probably you know one of the great things about living in an age of Internet addiction is there's tons of apps and advice about how to minimize your time on social media. You can download stuff that will like set you a time limit throughout the day uh, for how much time you can spend on social media and then it'll cut you off. Um, there's there's 
literally just Google like, you know, how to deal with social media addiction. You will find a ton of advice if part of what you want to do is just cut down. I think that is also a great goal. But in addition to cutting down the amount of time you spend endlessly scrolling through Instagram looking for reasons to feel bad about yourself, really sit with um, what what in my life do I genuinely not like and what I like to change? Um, and, and what would it look like if I brought that up with my partner and, and I tried to do something about it? Can I say something just Hell I, I yes. feel a little bit bad for the spouse, though, because she, she's saying to her yeah. spouse, this makes me feel so bad and I keep doing it. This makes me feel so bad and I keep doing it. I feel bad for her spouse, too, to have to listen to that. Mm. It's it's hard listening to somebody who has an addiction to something that makes them feel lousy. And then to say to them, hey, why don't we talk about cutting down on it and um, maybe eventually reaching a point of like, oh, my God, for God's sakes, why are you still posting on here and scrolling through this? When you have already told me 300 times today how bad it makes you feel. I am a bystander to your addiction to this thing. It's painful for me to watch you get upset about this 25 times a day. Every time you have a down moment, you pick up the phone and you start scrolling again. And it is so painful for me to watch you do this and then to beat yourself up because our lives suck. And that's essentially beating up my life, too, because you've said both of our lives are just sitting on the couch watching TV and doing these things. And I would have a really hard time as the partner of somebody who had that kind of addiction. That makes so much sense. I think it's so true that they're both kind of talking around something that clearly brings up a lot for them. Um, And they may both kind of feel afraid to name what's underlying this stuff in the sort of fear of like, if I name it, then we might have a fight. Um, And I think it's probably better to name this stuff. Like it may be that your husband is really frustrated um, with the way in which you kind of like obsessively scroll through Instagram and then try to participate. Whereas you're like, no, 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 if I participate, that's going to fix the problem because I'll have some a highlight reel of my own to add. Um, And he's meanwhile feeling like, oh, I really want to discourage this in some way Um, and, and is maybe not even consciously like aware that it hurts you. But like you both need to kind of name like. What's not working for you guys right now? Because it sounds like this is, again, it doesn't sound like your lives are miserable or everything is a nightmare, but it does sound like it's frustrating for you on a daily basis. So I think have the bigger conversation of like, hey, this clearly distresses you, husband. Let's talk about what you see and and, and what you think. And then let's also talk about me and what I'm feeling um, and, and make some slightly different choices. Maybe that's even just watching a little bit less TV together and doing something else. Maybe that's you don't ask him to participate when you try to take pictures on Instagram. Maybe it's, you know, you do a social media cleanse or whatever it is people are doing nowadays. But you got yeah. options. This is one of those letters that I feel hopeful about. There, yeah. There's a good next place that this there's, letter writer can go. I feel like it's it's opening up a big opportunity for you to, like, maybe connect with your husband and, and talk about the kind of lifestyle you guys are living and what he might be frustrated with and what you're frustrated with. Yeah. Yeah. And just if there's days that you default to like, well, we're both sitting on the couch now watching TV because this is what we always do and you don't want to, just don't. You know, just say like, you know what? I just don't want to watch TV today. I'm going to go on a walk. Um, And that doesn't mean you have to move to France or or like tell him what to do. But you just kind of like with the last letter, like sometimes you can do stuff that your spouse doesn't want to do. You don't have to spend every single evening together you know, locked into just like eternal companionship by default. There's a whole big world out there. (laughs) Whole big, whole big. Guys, thank you both so much for coming on the show. It will air soon. And I'm looking forward very much to uh, your Love Languages podcast. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thanks so much, Mallory. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. 
Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Looking for more from Slate? Lexicon Valley is a podcast about language, from pet peeves, syntax and etymology to neurolinguistics and the death of languages. Hosted by linguist, author, and Columbia University professor John McWhorter, Lexicon Valley appears every other Tuesday. To learn more, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley.